0: And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Saren Kester, and I am in uh, studio today with, uh, so far, half of the Dave and Stefan team. We have Dave. Hello. Welcome, Dave. We gave uh, mm. Stefan a week off. It's just going to be you and me today. Uh, largely as well, we will uh, normally have our uh, phone guest as well. Lauren, our correspondent, will be joining us by phone in the middle half to talk about some economic stuff. And then we have... Uh, the economics guy, our economics guy, Tim the Nash. The green economist. The green economist. Hasn't been on for a while, but sort of the in-house uh, economics expert. We bring him on about mm. twice a year to correct uh, all the off-the-cuff <laughs> statements I've been making throughout the year. It's, it's, it's sort of like a penance, right? He just mm. sort of gets us caught up uh, on our accuracy he loves about that those of those topics. So uh, Tim will be joining us uh, for the show uh, a little bit later as well. But right now, uh, Dave, I understand the the weather is misbehaving.
1: Oh, as usual, sarah Uh, So we have the thickest and oldest parts of Arctic ice have begun to break up just north of Greenland. 2018 marks the first year this has been observed. The area, which generally piles up with ice ridges over 20 meters thick, was previously thought to be the last part of northern ice that would not melt, but strange February temperatures and a hot summer have deposed it from that role, and scientists are rethinking where the last perennial ice area may be. Um, Now, also with melting ice, melting permafrost in Siberia has revealed living nematodes that have been frozen for 42,000 years. This marks the first evidence of multicellular organisms returning to life in the Arctic permafrost, as well as the natural cryopreservation of multicellular animals. The worms are around one millimeter in length and can live over a kilometer underground and can develop five mouths. If the right kind of food is around, Saren, that's five mouths. That's a whole lot of mouths to that's eat. A lot of mouths. Yeah. The first organism discovered in the Arctic were viruses uh, that were frozen for 30,000 years. Further studies are needed to explain how the worms were able to survive the extended freeze. The discoveries could have implications for cryomedicine, cryobiology, and astrobiology.
0: Yeah. The first thing I thought of when I was uh, reading through that, it wasn't, it didn't look like it was specifically, uh, uh, outlined, uh, in here, but, uh, astrobiology of course is life in space. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, when we're looking at, uh, just to sort of step away from the, the science angle for a second, just to Mm -hmm. to point at the, the, or the the environment angle, just to point at the pure science angle for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, some, some of those researchers are, uh, in the back of their mind thinking about whether or not, uh, you know, cause these are extremophiles if they can survive Mm -hmm. in extreme conditions. Conditions? Could they survive on asteroids? Like that's sort of where mm-hmm. they don't want to, mm-hmm. they don't want to say anything yet because obviously there's no evidence for it, but that's mm-hmm. some of the things you're looking at when you're looking at extremophiles and, and extreme life forms that can survive in places you didn't think they could. Mm. Um, you start talking to your astrobiologists and uh, wondering <laughs> if these things could, you know, could stay alive on an asteroid. Mm-hmm. Who knows? So just like super cool stuff.
1: Yes. Um, that revealed by climate change.
0: Yeah. Climate well, that, I mean, that part's less cool, but the, uh, <laughs> yeah, we might get wiped out just before we find out there's life on other planets. Yeah, That's or, all I'm saying. Yeah,
1: well, we'll locate the key, the, right. key, the, the key that brought life to Earth right. just before we, we uh, enter our final destruction. Yeah. So That'd nature be finds
0: a way is our first story. <laughs> nature finds a way to have five right. mouths
1: on a budget. All right, we're going to move on to some more weather. All right. So according to a new study published in Nature Communications, summer weather patterns are likely to stall in Europe, North America and parts of Asia. Due to, hotter temper- due to hotter Arctic temperatures that slow down the circulation of jet streams, causing low and high pressure fronts to stay where they are, leading to extended heat waves. The authors warn this could lead to extreme extremes, where sunny days become heat waves, rains become floods, and tinder-dry conditions turn into wildfires. The Arctic is warming two to four times faster than the global average, and as the temperature gap between the North Pole and the equator is declining, so is the power of planetary wind systems or jet streams to shift the the pressure systems and move weather around. An example of this phenomenon is Hurricane Harvey, which devastated Texas in 2017. It stayed along the coast for an unusually long time where it drew up moisture from the sea and dumped it on the land. A similar phenomenon exacerbated the 2016 Alberta wildfires, which took two months to extinguish and became the costliest disaster in Canadian history with a total price tag of almost $9 billion. The uh, Guardian article this is from said $4.7 billion. But I researched the number, and then CBC put out something that said $9 billion. So I don't really understand how they calculate these things, <laughs> but uh, that's what I have, $9 billion. Uh, Chris Rapley, professor of climate science at University College London, said, quote, What happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. By upsetting the energy balance of the planet, we are changing the temperature gradient between the equator and the pole. This, in turn, sets in motion major reorganizations of the flow patterns of the atmosphere and ocean. The consequences are emerging and they are disruptive, and likely to become even more profoundly so. We are on a journey, and the destination doesn't look good.
0: One of the things that really jumps out at me from that as well is, uh, you know, as much as we talk, uh, Dave, about um, average temperature rise. Of mm. course, going to r- go way back here to my my uh, like pre-high school math here. <laughs> uh, but averages uh, are a funny thing, right? Mm. So uh, when we're talking about average uh, temperature increase. Uh, five degrees, five degrees, five degrees, six degrees, six degrees, six degrees mm-hmm. creates average increase of half a degree, right? You put those mm-hmm. together, you get five and a half. But so does zero 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 ten 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 five point five. Also mm-hmm. comes out to five point five. Uh, please hope that math is correct because I didn't double check it in my head. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying, right? So like it's it's not a matter of it it being a good or bad indicator because average increase is important uh, because we need to study trends. But as far as what can we derive, so I guess what I'm cautioning here is the is the risk of taking any single years increase like oh we only uh increased by 0.012 this year maybe Mm. things are getting better or or look it actually went you know anomalously it went down a 10th of a degree this mm-hmm. year or something like that, 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 that inference cannot be drawn because it's entirely possible that you could end up with a, uh, as you were just outlining in that story, you could have a year where the average, uh, temperature actually stayed static or perhaps even went down by a 10th t- or a hundredth of a degree. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but it's now composed, uh, comprised of 10 heat waves and 10, uh, cooling things in the wrong seasons, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it is those numbers are useful, uh, but only in one direction, <laughs> and it's sort of uh, it's it's offering us sort of the bottom end of those changes or a look at how those changes can be analyzed over time, but. Often people will look at that, right? Of course, we hear this on the news all mm-hmm. the time, Dave, the throwing the snowballs in, in the House, you know, in the mm-hmm. uh, Senate or whatever, all the silliness of like trying to use those numbers the other way. And it's one of those just really mm-hmm. messy things that yeah, makes our yeah. job hard because in some cases those numbers are really useful, in some cases they're not. And when we're talking about like an individual year only went up a certain amount, or the, those averages are not useful mm-hmm. uh, on any short time scale. So if you hear anyone or if you read somebody, uh, particularly probably in the Globe and Mail these days, uh, who's <laughs> writing an article about, oh, look, we only went up 0.012, or, oh, look, it stayed steady this year, so this is obviously not a problem. Okay, look out the window, is my answer to that. But that's why those two things don't match, and why that also doesn't mean that those average uh, temperature increases, uh, it's not saying that they're not accurate. It's that you need to be using the right metric for the right analysis, Mm -hmm. and those average temperature increases are only useful over large Mm timescales. And then if we're looking at any one particular year, it really doesn't tell you very much, because we might have what we had this year, 10 wildfires and 10 uh, ice storms that are unseasonal, look at the average uh, data, it may not show very much. So I just, uh, just wanted to caution people on that because I've been seeing more and more of this. There seems to have been a sudden resurgence in a lot of the conservative papers mm-hmm. uh, in multiple places, but particularly in Canada of the, hey, look, it's not happening as much as we thought. So this is probably no yeah, big deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is. And you're wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. The complexity makes it very difficult to explain, but also to understand. Right. I mean, the, the on the one hand, you have the average rise, but you also have Um, As pointed out by this um, Arctic breaking, uh, the Arctic, the thickest part of the Arctic ice, just north of Greenland, breaking up, which I didn't mention, um, is caused not just by averages rising, but strange spikes. So the averages will rise, which will cause strange, strange spikes in temperatures. For for instance, in February, and then earlier this month, which caused the the ice north of greenland to break up and move away from the shore which then causes it to melt even faster so it's not simply the temperatures it's what the spikes are causing the the ice to do
0: so i've been having um some trouble with my landlord and our water there's been a really really old building the building i live in was built in the 1920s and is just like constantly having plumbing problems and so our water gets shut off all the time it's kind of ridiculous uh But here's the thing, like if you signed a a tenant agreement, say, Dave, you're signing a new uh, condo, new condominium, perhaps your new mansion Mm -hmm. uh, signing over. uh, Oh, but it has to be renting. Okay, so you're renting your new mansion. um, And it says in your contract explicitly, the water temperature will be guaranteed to be of a monthly average of X degrees. Mm -hmm. And you got into your apartment and uh, there was only two settings, you know, one degree above freezing and one degree below boiling. They'd technically be filling their contract, but it's not really (laughs) going to work for you, is it? So that's that's the type of thinking that we need to be having about these extreme temperatures and these extreme events when we're looking at averages, Mm. um, is that it is useful in the right context. But Mm. yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. think anyone would be satisfied. Well, well, they were right. It was averaged out at, at you know twenty five degrees or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not going to help you. And that's the same thing that's happening with our weather. Mm-hmm. You know, we're yeah. it's it's ob- like we're reading this true, but it's like it's obviously true. Like we've yeah. been we've been. You don't even need to listen to this show to to know that this has been <laughs> going on. Uh, it's just more data and confirmation. Yeah,
1: right? and of course, of course, is the threat of other loops, other other feedback loops that become uh, yeah uh, released from the the melting of the thickest ice.
0: But uh, uh, Stefan isn't with us today, so let's, uh, we'll veer away from the <laughs> jellyfish apocalypse talk. What's the next story, Dave? What's next?
1: Um, I had one more comment about the ice, but now I've forgotten oh. it. Oh, well, we can move back. All right. Um, yes, so I'm going to segue into coal and the Trump administration, Sarah. So the Trump administration is deregulating coal while admitting that over 1,400 more people will die each year as a result. So in the fine print of their proposal, they said 1,400 more people will die each year as a result. Um, Trump seems to believe that coal plants are indestructible, or else is subliminally preparing the American public for a massive war. I say this because at a rally in West Virginia, he argued that coal is necessary because wind turbines, nuclear plants, solar panels, and pipelines are all vulnerable to enemy fire, whereas coal is not. You cannot destroy coal.
0: I'm sorry, can I interrupt you? That was yeah. just such a hilarious choice of words. <laughs> coal is impervious to enemy fire. <laughs> I know. Because good thing they didn't light it on fire before we lit it on fire to use it for energy. Yeah, it means
1: it can't be destroyed for some reason in in the event of a bombing or invasion. It is
0: indestructible like his hubris. (laughs)
1: Um, He is calling his plan to revive the coal industry, Saren, an affordable clean energy proposal. And yet it is neither clean nor affordable. Since it will burden the healthcare system, cause environmental damage that will have to be cleaned up at some point and use public funds to prop up a resource that may no longer uh, that may no longer be economically viable since the rise of natural gas. The Washington Post is reporting that the move will cause the US to add at least 12 times more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere over the coming decade. Democracy Now reminds us that the current EPA chief is indeed a former coal industry lobbyist, Andrew Wheeler, and that Trump has referred to the US as the cleanest country on the planet and that coal plants, on top of carbon pollution, are the USA's biggest source of mercury pollution and smog and water contamination. Mary Ann Hitt of the Sierra Club stated that the policy puts lives in danger to, quote, "...benefit coal executives who are running power plants that can no longer compete against renewable energy, that are polluting our air and our water and our climate, and are, frankly, facing stiff competition these days from wind and solar." She added that she does not believe the plan is ultimately going to succeed.
0: Uh, I also agree, but I think for a different reason, Uh, I don't think he'll be in office long enough to see that through. But, um, (laughs) you know, what do I know? Um, No, these things are concerning. It's important to keep an eye on them. But in all seriousness, there is, uh, you know, the American midterms coming up and whatnot. I think we're, we're in a period of... Uh, either a reckoning or or just the the final nail in the coffin for our American friends listening, uh, sympathy and apologies genuinely to our American <laughs> friends who are listening. Um, so I kind of, uh, I almost want to, like, I think it's important that we, we follow that stuff because we want to follow what happens with it um, mm. as the American government changes. But uh, I almost feel like calling a moratorium on like Trump terrible policy uh, reporting after this point. Uh, now, just because of as of this week, it seems like so serious um, because, yeah, yeah, something's going on down there. So I think I think it is important that we that we track uh, those policies and mm-hmm. stuff. But I don't believe that Donald Trump is long for this world, uh, mm-hmm. politically speaking.
1: Well, I mean, it's still useful to observe the policies just to see the kind of uh, attempts that um, industry makes. And,
0: oh, uh, no, of course. Yeah. And I think it's important that we follow them to, to see to, because you have to track them to make sure that they get put back when somebody who's not a corrupt uh, Russian asset uh, is in charge. <laughs> um you know, so for, from those points of view, I think certainly, and and also largely, I think the other more important uh, impact as well uh, is that American policies are still going to have an international consequence, even mm. if other countries don't like it. And so, even
1: if the American Americans don't go through with those policies
0: absolutely yeah so I mean even as say the policy doesn't go through but you uh, the the guy who was the, the lobbyist still works there for six years or we, or we're not like we need to need to keep an eye on these things and understand how they were constructed so that we can understand how to reconstruct them as well afterwards uh, track the damage like yeah I mean if you if you have thousands of laws and, and somebody goes through and changes all of them you need it's not just automatic that when you get a better government in that all the laws change again right you need mm-hmm. to know what do we need to fix how do we need to fix it what was broken mm-hmm. hey maybe this is an opportunity to, re, to Re look at it. Um, But I guess it was just sort of more of a a personal note that I'm sort of like every time, as of I think about five days ago, every time I read something about Trump, be like, whatever, Mm -hmm. he's gone. Yeah, it's a uh, a personal feeling. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it, it, uh, who knows? I mean, who knows? (laughs) I mean, yeah,
0: if he's not, we have yet another um,
1: serious problem. Yeah, that's up
0: to you, American friends.
1: (laughs) Yeah, what's interesting is his um, just constant attempt to destroy everything Obama did. And just just to, just to rewrite everything that the current administration the earlier administration did same thing what we're seeing with Doug Ford where you just wanna you have no you have no ideas of your own you just want to dismantle what already exists. Mm. Um, but uh, the thing I remember the thing I was going to mention about the ice, mm. which was the, which is not really all that interesting, merely sort of a poetic observation. But what we're looking at now is um, scientists with this with the thick with the thickest ice uh, breaking up over Greenland. You have scientists now thinking. Where can we locate the uh, final ice area? The, what they call the last ice area, mm. where um, where where they believe will be the the final um, chunk of perennial ice that will that will survive through the summer. Before I suppose I, it's not clear whether they believe that uh, we are. I guess they don't know whether or not we will f- we will see a day where there is no ice whatsoever in the Arctic during the summer. Um, but they're looking at what could possibly be the last holdout device. I don't know. If, I don't know if this is like wishful or beautiful or um, uh, thinking, <laughs> hopeful thinking on the part of the scientists, just to not alarm themselves or the public, <laughs> or if they actually do believe that there still will be <clears throat> a chunk of perennial ice uh, throughout the year, even as we, I don't know, go forward to mid-century.
0: Well, call me cynical, Dave, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I have this like mental image of like it getting really close to wiping out. And then all of a sudden some, uh, industrious, uh, entrepreneur, mm. um, is selling like last natural ice on earth ice cubes for like $10,000 a gram or something. Uh, and that, uh, and then I predict, uh, in my, in my darkness, uh, mm. I predict that that's actually how the last several cubic feet of, of Arctic ice will go is in mm. uh, very dry martinis. That
1: would be amazing. That, and that would go for a lot of money. dollars a glass. I discovered yeah. a handbag that was worth double my annual salary. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't and it, even was, have... it was a very ugly handbag, and not <laughs> even by a well-known designer. It was very embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We've got uh, we've got our guests on uh, deck. I see uh, uh, one of our other guests as well. It's come into the the p- batter's box, if you will, warm up the p- the warm up uh, there, there he so is. So I'm thinking uh, if you're all right with that, Dave. I'm thinking maybe we uh, can go to our Let's music do break it. now. Um, so we'll go to Megan, who's in there in the in the booth, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes. What's going on, Megan? And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners uh, all across the galaxy, really, Dave. Um, mm. it's, it's floating in the ether as energy, and so theoretically people on other
1: planets could be listening. You're probably correct.
0: Uh, I like to assume that they would. Mm-hmm. Um, send help. <laughs> 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 uh, all right, that's my intro. Um, we've, the laughter you hear in the background is Lauren, our correspondent, who's on the phone, and I'm actually going to pass back to David to uh, to run that section. Welcome uh, to this week's edition, uh, uh, Lauren, and I give you Dave.
1: Yes. Uh, so in um, 2012, Blue Green Canada, an alliance between Canadian labor unions, environmental and civil society organizations, released a report showing that investment in clean energy and efficiency would create more wealth, more jobs, and greater stability than an equal investment in fossil fuels. The report claimed that 18 to 20,000 jobs could have been created by transferring the $1.3 billion in fossil fuel subsidies to renewables, efficiency, and public transit, whereas it would only create 2,300 jobs if left where it was. The report stated, quote, "...Canada is at risk of being left behind as other more forward-thinking countries invest in renewable energy and reap the financial rewards. Volatile pricing for oil is why expensive oil sands uh, projects were hit the hardest during the recession. Meanwhile, investment in renewable energy continued to climb. Expanding oil exports also worsens the impacts of the petrodollar, which hurts manufacturing jobs in other parts of the country." The Pembina Institute put out an article last year pointing out the key role governments play in developing technologies in their early stages, and highlighting the public benefits of government investment in green energy. One very positive result of government investment in innovation is what's called knowledge spillover, which is the extra-economic activity and job growth created outside the scope of the original investment, as other firms using new technology or even other industries making use uh, of the innovations." make use of the innovations. The article highlighted three categories of innovation as it related to the environment, clean, gray, and dirty. Clean innovation is the elimination of carbon from an existing service. Gray innovation refers to efficiency improvements or the reduction of carbon use of a given service. And dirty innovation is innovation without environmental benefit. Research has shown that knowledge spillover is larger and more economically beneficial when investing in clean innovation. The article concludes that the greatest return on investment and therefore the greatest public benefit comes from investing in clean tech and ends by praising plans that use the revenue generated by a carbon levy, such as cap-and-trade, to invest in green energy innovations. This past May, the T published an article based on a report called Canada's Energy Outlook by David Hughes, whom they called, quote, one of Canada's most foremost energy experts. The article named Nine Uncomfortable Canadian Energy Facts, and those discomforting facts ran as follows Canadians are living on almost entirely fossil fuel energy. Canada has one of the world's highest carbon footprints. Canada has never been a leader in renewable energy. Canada will not meet emissions targets if it expands oil production. Canada's oil has a limited economic future. The return on investment for oil sands is closing in on 2 to 1 versus the 17 to 1 of conventional oil. Meeting climate targets may require doubling our current hydropower capacity in a country already filled with expensive dams. Nuclear power costs five times more than gas, three times more than onshore wind, and two times more than utility-scale solar. And Canada does not have a sustainable energy strategy, but should focus on efficiency to reduce energy consumption. Quote, the reality of having to limit production growth must be faced. Canada faces some very difficult choices ahead.
0: Well, that's sad. <laughs> uh, Lauren, I want to throw you something, and the, um, uh, and then I'll I'll chime in when you're uh, good. Which is just about <clears throat> this idea. This idea that comes up, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is that these. Uh, you know, we we looked at some some recent numbers, but this is information that I've been following from these sources for years. Um, this is not new. Um, these ideas. We I talked about a report uh, from uh pembina i remember about i think maybe four years ago tim uh uh who's our next guest i think was actually here for that episode where we talked about a lot of these Mm. uh it was roughly going from memory about three to one at the time we're saying Mm. about per uh money back to the economy per dollar invested i'm sure there's a fancy term for that um but it was about three three to one uh Mm. relative between renewable energy um canada obviously has a lot of um, opportunities as well we have uh, vast opportunities for geothermal and all this stuff so there, there's so much low-hanging fruit i think still left to go but the large reason for that seems to be that this very convincing false argument that renewable energy isn't ready seems to be so sticky that it i don't know how many reports of these reports mm-hmm. have come out and, and it doesn't make it to a newspaper front page or at least a general newspaper much less the population so what do we do lauren it's all you
2: <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, I was content just to continue to, to to continue to giggle in the background of, of stuff, but anyway. <laughs> well, I'm out of um, jokes, so sorry. <laughs> well, honestly, it, like you're right. It is depressing um, because I think that blue green article. what uh, David said it was written in 2012, and it was incredibly accurate in its prediction. Canada has entirely been left behind. Um, I think at this point, uh, one of those articles that we referenced. Said that uh, Canada still funds and subsidizes the oil and gas industry to the tune of 1.3 billion dollars annually um, obviously that's that's not including our recent uh, pipeline acquisition um, <laughs> and 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 honestly to be to be honest I, I'm, I'm at a loss of, of what we should do because the discourse has been so entirely dominated by the idea that, investment in green energy is risky and unnecessary to a degree and that we're doing just fine with oil and gas and 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 that it's expensive um just thinking back to the discussion we had about even even something even something like wind turbines which anymore isn't especially innovative or new or sexy like wind turbines have been around well Wind turbines and windmills have been around for, for thousands of years. But wind turbines as we know them have, have been creating clean energy for decades now. So it's, it's not new, but even that innovation and that investment is still seen as, as risky and scary for so many Canadians. Um, and it's really, really hard to push back against folks who are self-professed economists or self-professed experts in the market when, when they say that, that the economy has to be prioritized and that the economy um, and, and that a healthy economy and a healthy GDP isn't sort of conducive with, with green energy growth. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard for us to come into those spaces and, and counter those points and have people believe us, I guess, because there still is the idea that, that we're all just a bunch of dirty liberal arts hippies with no idea what we're talking about
0: uh Up.
3: Tim, Tim,
0: yeah, Tim would like to here. jump in uh, early. So Tim Nash, the, the please
3: sa- do
2: Tim. <laughs> I think.
0: Well, I
3: think the sad you've touched on a great point there, and I think the sad reality is that most of us are, you know, sort of hippie arts majors with no financial literacy <laughs> or economic literacy, and that to me is is kind of the greatest failure of the environmental movement in Canada. Is that when conversations turns to economic matters, we shut down, uh, mm-hmm. we lose all confidence. Uh, We just sort of blubber and and kind of freeze and we don't have a response to these things. And, you know, and and so to to me, the solution is that if you care about these issues, you need to realize that economic literacy is is hugely important to your role as an activist and that Mm -hmm. we can no longer have people pushing for environmental and social justice issues without a firm understanding of economics And I think that, you know, there's so many examples of this. The biggest one that's just come up recently is, you know, employment numbers have been coming out and job growth in Ontario is doing just fine. And it wasn't that long ago when we were talking about raising minimum wage. And remember the doom and gloom that, no, this is going to destroy jobs. It's Mm going to destroy the economy. Everyone's going to lose jobs. Guess what happened? Job growth has been just fine. And yet kind of no one's been calling out sort of the BS on all the people that, that were saying that that was going to destroy the economy. It's the same thing with carbon tax right now. And I, as far as I'm concerned, this is the big issue for so many of us, I think, going into the next election. It's all about carbon tax. And the same argument is there. This is a job-killing carbon tax. It's going to destroy our economy. It's mm-hmm. you know, And keep in mind, these are people that are accusing us of the doom and gloom on the science side. and And yet when someone says that the carbon tax is going to kill jobs... Uh, what's the response from environmentalists? Mm -hmm. We don't have one. Now, there are arguments to be made. There are a number of economic arguments to be made. The problem is that most environmentalists in Canada don't know those economists, don't follow the economics, and wouldn't feel confident speaking to it. The last point I'm going to make here is understand that economics is so much more of an art than it is a science. We don't know the impact of a lot of these things. Um, you know, it's anyone's kind of best guess. And so the way economic debates happen, it's very similar to a sort of a philosophic debate mm. or debate about whether a TV show is good or not. And it's whoever comes across sounding more <laughs> confident, sounding more knowledgeable, whoever can convince the other pe- person that they know more than them ends up winning that debate. And sadly, when it comes to economic arguments, environmentalists go back into a turtle shell Right. And we become very meek and almost, you know, sort of afraid of those conversations. So to me the solution is very simple. We need widespread financial and economic literacy for environmentalists and social justice activists.
0: So you can find Tim at no okay. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead.
2: I um I would also are you and, and like this isn't me pushing back, I, I agree with you. But and, and I would also sort of add on to it saying that um, even if even if you do get um, an activist or somebody sort of advocating on behalf of the environment um and and they do have have a thorough understanding of of the economic principles um uh, whether it's just it's just a matter of nailing those talking points or having a really thorough in-depth in-depth grasp of of the theory um people will still defer to the middle-aged white man in a suit over over the young the young person or 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 the the granola crunching hippie um just because there are those perceptions there that they know that they don't know as that they don't know as well, um, and I feel like I saw that a lot in the in the university fossil fuel divestment movement. Um, even it's, it's odd. Um, we would have speaking again from from the perspective of a divestment activist, uh, a lot of our strongest supporters and strongest advocates for fossil fuel divestment were professors within the economics department. Who, who clearly knew what they were talking about. These are people with PhDs who, who the university had trusted to to mold young minds and, and educate them on economic principles, and still administrators would, um, or administrators rather <laughs> would 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 sort of brush over their expertise and and argue that they that they as a, as administrators somehow knew better than than the economics professor who ran the department for twelve years. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's sometimes it's just a matter of who's speaking speaking loudest and and has the nicest suit on, I guess.
0: I think it's largely part of that. I, I want to add on to the end of your th- uh, add of add on to the end of your add on an add on of my own, which is. Uh, <laughs> Which is just to clarify, like, one thing, like, you know, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an economist, but I, I, I like to think of myself as at least an amateur communications expert. Um, and one thing, if you think about it, when, um, if from the point of view of like rhetoric, uh, Tim asked me like, hey, did you eat my cookie? And I said, but I was really hungry. Not, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Tim's hearing that I just confessed to eating the cookie. So when, uh, when someone says we can't afford renewable energy and you say, but what about the polar bears? The same thing. Right. They hear, true or not, they hear a concession that you're mm-hmm. right. And that you and what they hear you saying is, I'm asking you to pay money for uh to uh, to a a assuage my personal moral conviction about animals. And they dismiss you. And that's why. And then the environmentalist gets to that and they feel that dismissal and they get so angry about, oh, stupid right wing or stupid right wing. Okay, well maybe. But it's also entirely possible that you presented yourself as as knowing that you have a losing argument on that front. And so if you don't have a response to that, and then here I am speaking to our colleagues and our listeners and our friends, and if you're getting into those conversations and you don't have an answer for that question, don't go to polar bears go to let me look it up and send you some resources let me find it let me find that information for you um it is true that these things are it is not true that these things are necessarily the case and if you can't make that argument refer them to someone who can or just at least make it clear that that argument that argument can in fact be made and if you want to add the polar bears after that great but it just you have to understand when you're talking to people that are looking for a reason for you to be wrong when you sidestep what their main concern is, they hear that as an admission that you know you're wrong. And it's just, it's honestly, it's one of the most common things I've ever heard being at events or being around other young activists, frankly, uh, is that they really overvalue the moral argument because they don't realize that it only works if the person already agrees with you. And and at the same time, what they also don't realize is that to the, to the listener, it sounds like a concession. And I think that's been a real problem in the environment movement for a really long time, which is a, a bunch of people going out thinking they have all the answers and they don't and, uh, and then presenting themselves as if they do. And it unfortunately makes everybody look bad. Um, so do your homework, please, please. We want you on team, but please do a little bit of homework or at least admit that you, that someone else maybe should be the person that you should be communicating with. Um, I'm sorry. That's my little soapbox for a minute, but I really do think it's a very serious problem. And like Tim, you've been coming on this program for years and we, we've had that exact conversation like six years ago. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you feel like it's gotten any better. Perhaps I can ask you that question. Do you no, think I, average I,
3: literacy has improved? Uh, mm, so here's what I would say is that uh, I'm really focused right now on this notion of locus of control. Understanding what do I actually have control over? And one thing I've stopped doing is trying to change people's minds because I really don't have control over what people think, what people believe, uh, especially if they do fall into that like rich old white dude, you know, know everything, psychology, status quo bias. I've been doing this for 40 years. Uh, I'm not going to convince them. So I've really stopped uh, spending my energy on those people. Um, I think there are a lot, a lot, a lot of people that are open to these ideas, that get it, that that uh, uh, are much more conscious and aware of these issues that are actually looking for solutions, looking for steps, looking to kind of take that next step. And so... You know, I think part of it is understanding what do I have control over? What do I not have control over? Now, I know for activists, it's like that's that's a tough thing because so much of it is getting in people's face and kind of taking that control and, and doing that. Um, I just say for me personally, I got so tired of banging my head against the wall um, that I got kind of burned out. And discouraged that now really where I'm finding my optimism is understanding what do I actually have control over where do I have power right acknowledging my privilege acknowledging the assets that I do have um, in terms of my social capital and, and the voice that I've got and how can I use that and to stop trying to convince someone and really I'm at the point now where you know if there's someone that is just so out to lunch you know, I've done my best to kind of unfollow most people on Twitter that are. I was doing opposition research for a while to try to understand the other side. I'm done with that. It was just draining. <laughs> I can my confirm soul. it was
0: making you crazy.
3: It was, and so um, you know, but there's still a couple hang, uh, you know, layovers from that. So one is Terrence Cochran, who's got just so much power, you know, in terms of media. And it, while you know, BC is burning, it was right after the Toronto floods, and he tweeted a link to you know why the Wikipedia article on global warming you know isn't accurate and why we should be <laughs> skeptical of that wikipedia art article and for me it's just pointing out that lunacy that like really here we are now we're in this world where like climate change is here it's happening and you're advocating for skepticism around the definition that to me I'm I'm done trying to convince that person instead what i'm going to do is sort of point to them as just as absurd to show other people just how out to lunch that person is. So I'm done trying to convince them. I'm done fighting that battle. But what I will do is essentially hold up, uh, you know, hold up that mirror and more importantly, sort of reflect it so that other can people other people can see sort of just how, uh, uh, you know, often ignorant. And, and it cuts both ways. You know, we need uh, environmentalists to understand more about economics. We need economists and people that are in the finance world to understand more about these environmental risks. And we are seeing more data come out. And, you know, and and I don't know whether it's just whether we need proper storytelling, better communication vehicles. I don't know. But I also think that part of it is just kind of generational and and that as hard as it is for me, part of it is just kind of being patient, understanding that this shift is happening, that you can't stop this economic movement, um, you know, and that really just – Looking after myself and and my family and my friends <laughs> and everyone's well-being, you know, understanding that that it is going to take longer than most of us want it to take.
0: Yeah, so um, we're we're at our good break, but Lauren, I want to give you um, another minute. We're going to go over for a minute because I took some uh, some time uh, out of yours as well. Can you just comment on that? Um, uh, on the last bit, as far as you, uh, I think of anyone, perhaps with the exception of Stefan, uh, who's not here. So, of anyone in the room, spend the most time ag- uh, with actual people. I think who are who are working on the ground on these issues at all. Can you comment on that sort of economic literacy angle at all? Either, what's your assessment of the people that you know's uh, uh, awareness of that, or or perhaps uh, an idea or or a message that could be given to them? Just some some comment about. How to get this information that's so so necessary to the folks who are actually going out and making these arguments?
2: Yeah, um, I guess that's the thing. In my experience, um, a lot of the folks that I engage with and organize with are incredibly economically literate. Um, actually, Tim, I know some of them who have taken your seminars before. Yeah, uh, at <laughs> different at different convergences and conferences. So it's it's not it's not a lack of expertise. These are people who devote their lives to these issues, who are reading the literature and and listening to the podcast and making sure they have all that information and they, and they're, and they're prepared going into those arguments. Um, I think it's to a degree, um, a, a level of confidence that we have to carry in our expertise when we go into those conversations, trusting that we have those answers and that we don't need to defer and that we don't need to be sheepish and, and, and coy when having those arguments. Um,
0: and to not be intimidated when when somebody in a white man in a suit gets really arrogant and condescending. Because that exactly. it, it happens all the time where people like you sort of like second totally. guess yourself because they're so absolutely like, oh come on, child.
2: Yeah, exactly. You have well, to I,
0: get some steel in your spine. No, you're yeah. wrong, and I can prove it. Where would you like exactly. me to email the the resources for you to look at is what the answer should be.
2: Mm-hmm. That being said, um, I do think Tim raised a really important point that when we are going into these discussions with people. Not going in with the expectation that you're going to convert somebody right. or that you're going to make them see the light and see your way, because nobody likes going into a conversation feeling like they're feeling like they're they're trying to be converted. Um, people aren't receptive to that. I feel like I remember listening to something that Catherine Hayhoe, um, who is a Canadian but she researches out of the states, I believe, and she she specializes in sort of science communications, and and that's sort of her her philosophy is she doesn't go into these conversations trying to convince somebody that she is right and that they are wrong because nobody's going to be receptive to that ever. Um, So, yeah, I I don't know. We have to have confidence in ourselves and in our knowledge, but at the same time, uh, yeah, sort of (laughs) accept the fact that we're not going to convert everybody and just sort of work on, work on shifting people gradually through that (laughs) spectrum of allyship that, that we so often talk about.
0: Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I think the only, the only add on to that, that I would request uh, would be is that, you know, you don't need to, yeah, you don't need to convert those people, but like also don't concede that point. I think that's my, like my really sticking point today is like, you don't, you don't need to get into an argument with crazy uncle Harold, who thinks that the Illuminati are changing the weather with things or whatever. You don't need to get into an argument with him. But if he says climate change is a hoax, say, no, it isn't right. Mm-hmm. And be like, oh, well, think, well, no, it's not like, if they want to push it, you don't have to like engage but like hold your ground, yeah. I think, because as Tim said very, very rightly, and, and I've, uh, I won't get into why I know this, but in a number of other areas of people who have spent their lifetimes trying to change people about you know skepticism and whatnot about funny ideas, it absolutely is something I've heard from every single source regardless of the topic, which is that it is useful to have those conversations when there's an audience. Because the person feels like even if you actually did convince them, they, they won't concede for the embarrassment of like it's pride. Right. And that's why you'll never convince them, because the stopgap for all your arguments is you'll never have an argument that will get past their pride. But everybody else watching knows what it looks like to look that foolish and goes, uh, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't know. And it works. It's effective. And I think that that's really important.
3: And I'm going to take something away from this, uh, uh, Lauren, which I really appreciate, which is that I think you're right. It's not about economic literacy. It's about economic confidence. And so now I'm going to start talking about how environmentalists, you know, first step is literacy. Let's get that. Once we've got that, now it's economic confidence to be able to share our, our ideas, to know those concepts and speak confidently about them. I love, love
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Lauren.
2: Absolutely. Talk soon.
0: We're going to talk to you soon. All right. So um, Dave, uh, we're going to be back in just a minute. Uh, we'll we'll spend some more time with Tim. We're going to dive further into some economic stuff. Um, and we'll be right back. But first, Megan will tell us what we're going to listen to. Family or family
2: or we can wait and we can see if... Among the trees and start right. Oh, I say to you, what
0: are we waiting for? All right, we are back. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the galaxy, uh, and particularly our podcast listeners, who we prefer only very slightly because we can track you uh, for, uh, for data reasons, uh, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. It's also a great way to download it, even if you listen to the show. Because as much as we try not to talk at a thousand miles an hour, we do. And that'll give you an opportunity to take a second pass, you know, if you get the podcast. So greenmajority.ca for all the notes. Dave works very hard on doing little write-ups and linking all the, the notes for us these days uh, and folks doing good work out there. So check out greenmajority.ca. But that is all I'm going to say about our website, because now it is time for Tim Nash, the sustainable economist, who is wearing the super sustainable economist t-shirt. Yeah. Super money. Super money. Yeah. And it's green.
3: That's it. For two reasons. Green and gold. There you go. Green and gold. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, We've had not had you on for a while, so uh, of course you're our resident in-house official economics expert. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and as it's a title, no one can question the use of the word expert, because it's a proper title. <laughs> see, what, see what I did there? I like it. It's so Your proper title oh, is perfect. expert, Tim Nash. Okay. So uh, Tim, we bring you on every once in a while to just like catch up uh, on any uh, errancies I've made about uh, economics for a while, and also to let us know what's going on Um Uh, Because you run a number of fairs. Like outside of your actual investment business, you do quite a lot of advocacy in... I don't know. I want to say like these kind of interesting blurs between sort of just like doing a community event and it being like business. Like yeah. I, I really like that about your events Thank is you. that they seem very like this is my business, but it's also like a community event. And you, yeah. I find that you are always very good at striding that line. I think that's part of the reason why people find you so accessible. Right. Um, but, but tell us what's been up with that. Cause I know that there are new reports. I know there's new activities yeah. and then maybe we can stream back after that, back to what sort of where we were and sure. the stuff after.
3: Yeah. I mean, so lots going on these days, um, you know, and the, the, so on the bigger picture you know we it's it's tough right now politically uh we're in, we're in a tough spot i mean trump obviously has been doing no, us no favors and then now the big thing is with uh, doug ford as premier of ontario really moving backwards on climate change here in ontario and with ontario's sort of weight on the national scene Really, seeing how you know the the opponents to carbon pricing in in Canada are now really energized and are kind of ready for this battle. So politically, we're in a tough spot, um, but economically, when I look at, at you know what corporations are doing, when I look at what investors are doing, um, it's full steam ahead. People are keep, just keep really understanding that there is more money to be made. Both in terms of green sectors, whether we're looking at clean tech, renewable energy, water infrastructure, uh, recycling and remediation has been doing really, really well. Um, But also just looking at on the corporate sustainability side that I'm now seeing corporations stepping up and really moving beyond government. Uh, leading the charge towards a more sustainable future, realizing that their long term prosperity is dependent on these social and environmental systems. So that's kind of the big picture, um, you know, sort of where we're at, that politically we're in for a rough ride over the next little while, um, but that on the economic side, money is still very much flowing into green sectors. Uh, on a personal level, it's been kind of cool for me the last couple months. Uh, I've had some great TV opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I've been kind of going I was you gonna know, ask you to about Bay that, Street. You. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, BNN Bloomberg, uh, I had an opportunity there to go on and talk about Doug Ford canceling uh, cap and trade and that was able to parlay that into what I think is going to become a regular spot nice. on a show. Show called Market Call, mm. which is this really bizarre, it's a one hour live call in show. So, so people call in Yeah <laughs> And with like stock picks So for me it's great Because I can kind of Fly off the cuff So you you would be like One of the panelists No I'm the you're, guest You're
0: the guest Yeah
3: With There's a host But like it's right. really about Facilitating my opinions so you're like a nice. co-host
0: That they don't want to pay To get well, to the studio
3: Well So it's their most popular show So they do it twice a day Every weekday Wow okay. And so the producers Need 10 guests per week I see oh. And I've gotten really good At making friends With producers mm. So uh, so I was on that a couple weeks ago. It was my first shot. Uh, I'm going to be back on that on uh, uh, September 4th, so the Tuesday after Labor Day uh, at 6 p.m. It's a live show. So really, you know, if people have specific questions about specific companies or funds, then, you know, it's a great place to be able to, to ask a question in a public space where other people can hear it. Um, but it's really, you know, my goal has just been to, to get investment people greedy about uh, uh, green investments that there are some really, really strong financial returns happening with these renewable energy utilities and water sector and, you know, recycling remediation. So, you know, there are some really good returns and most people just haven't looked at it. But when, you know, I can kind of get the chart up on TV and show that the socially responsible investment options are outperforming, mm. you know, it kind of yeah. like forces people to raise their eyebrow. <laughs> and, you know, it's normally I'm in trying to engage people's heart, you know, and, and this in this case, I'm trying to engage their pocketbook. Yeah. I know my audience audience here and all they care about is making money i'm gonna show them how to make some money with this um, so it's been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, but I do have an event coming up. We're going to plan it for November in Ottawa. So I'm going to take my impact investment fair that will probably be running here in Toronto again. My guess would be in February. Um, but I'm going to take it to Ottawa. There seems to be a lot of demand there. Mm-hmm. The federal government is still sort of on our side when it comes to impact investing and, and the green economy. So I'm going to, you know, my hope is to put on one of my sort of fun events, experiential learning, where people can come and invest some fake money into projects that have a really good financial return, but also are doing good things in the world.
0: Mm. Uh, one of those good friends that just, uh, just occurred to me now, as well as, uh, um, uh, the, oh, I'm, why did I just suddenly blank on the name? The, the investment uh, group,
3: so mutual colleagues of ours, they've been guests at your- um, Co-Power. Co-Power,
0: yes. yes. They've also been doing quite well as yeah, well. Co-power's yeah, Co-Power's been
3: growing, they've been selling a lot of bonds, um, and publishing some great studies. Yeah. Uh, there's a blog that I keep referring to, so my, my kind of talking point right now is really helping people understand, again, this locus of control. What do you have control over? Uh, one thing we have complete control over, are our investment dollars. Now I am assuming that you have investment dollars. So for some of your listeners, if you know, if you're not in a position where you can save, where you can invest, then, you know, unfortunately this this doesn't apply. But if you are in a privileged position where you do have RSP, TFSA, where you are able to put some money and invest it for the future, you have complete control over that money. And a lot of Canadians are just stuck in this sort of default position where they just kind of take whatever someone sold them way back when and they just never sort of think about it again and uh, I'm really pushing people to take control of their money Mm. and to invest it in a way that is in line with their values and and you know my angle obviously is do-it-yourself investing which is even more empowering because you know you don't pay the the bankers their fees Right. And by doing it yourself, you can save a lot of money and fees, but also really be deliberate about what types of companies you're investing in. Mm. So it's uh, it's a really powerful message. And especially in this time right now where, you know, I'll speak for myself. I'm feeling a lot of hopelessness around a lot of these issues. And, you know, when I'm seeing a lot of the news, when I'm seeing a lot, you know, the trends and the weather patterns that have been happening. And it's kind of this this real feeling of, of 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 powerlessness, um, and so for me, I've I've kind of latched onto this notion that you are in complete control of your money and how you invest that money, and really helping people decide you know what to invest in. Um, and then actually helping them through the the psychological barriers, but also the technological barriers. That the first time you invest your money can be a little bit scary. So that's why I've got my business is the financial uh, or investment coaching. Mm. Um, my website for that is goodinvesting.com. That's like an actual financial planning service where you know people pay me by the hour to, to walk them through the, through the stuff. Um, but really, you know, pushing this uh, uh, this idea, this concept that that there is power in your investment decisions. And by making a deliberate decision there, uh, that you can have a a really big impact on the world. Um, So back to Copower, they released this amazing blog post where they actually looked at the carbon uh, footprint of a lot of different activities. And they looked at, you know, what Canadians can do. And absolutely, we should be doing things like flying less, driving less, uh, moving towards a plant-based diet. Yes, yes, yes. And... Actually, the biggest thing, if you have more than $100,000 invested in the stock market, that the carbon footprint of your portfolio completely dwarfs all of those things. And that by far and away, the most impactful thing you can do to reduce your personal carbon footprint is to decarbonize your investment portfolio. Um, so you know it's really exciting to me to see more information, more data showing that this is actually more profitable. That you can make more money doing this. That it's also impactful. That you're actually having a tangible impact by doing these things. And I think there's real momentum around this notion that of of people kind of taking control of their money.
0: I think one of the um one of the things that sort of leaped out of me as you were talking, we've got about five uh, minutes left or so, so if there's anything particular you uh, wanted to get out, insert it into your answer, please. Sure. Uh, but what I was just thinking about was I wanted to ask you to apply something we were talking about in the last section when Lauren was on the phone to what you were just saying, which was this idea of, like, getting the word out there about the reality of these type of things. And it might be just the the e- economics, like, from a political economics point of view, which is, like, what r- impact is this going to have on the Canadian economy? And then there's the personal aspect of yep. my investments do you think i mean obviously talking about money is very can be very taboo for very understandable reasons right people have v- widely disparate areas of privilege talking about your money is is sort of is understandably and i think fairly not not really Polite,
3: a bit gauche. It's a is bit that gauche. the word.
0: Yeah, in fact, the <laughs> word it's it's the use of the word gauche. <laughs> uh, <coughs> nice, nice uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, inception joke there. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Um, but what I'm thinking about was that like can can we foresee a way if you are you know maybe we could talk about people where if you are in a position maybe you're with company who you right. know is in a similar position to right. you and that talking about money is not going to be socially awkward or or is potentially yeah. more to instead of saying to your friends hey do, you know you should really disinvest from oil because or whatever or because you know climate change instead just be like do you have any idea how much money I'm making with my solar stocks well this is it and that, that's what you do but they, like use it as advocacy and right. of course it has to be done carefully that's yes. why I wanted to say about the, the investment thing sure but for the folks who are in communities where largely their peers are in the same place as them yeah. and that would be less comfortable talk about your investments
3: yeah I mean absolutely Drag so I, I push back on that on that taboo and certainly we have it it exists there are certain things you can get away with asking for whatever reason. In like how much you pay for rent is like an acceptable question to ask because, I it's think a because sheer everyone's pain. trying to figure out yeah right so everyone's still how like there are, are these little moments yeah me. exactly <laughs> right so it's like you know there there are these moments where it is acceptable acceptable to bring it up but uh, I really think we need to be talking about these things more um, you know really it comes down to this there's this nice alignment between the personal the selfishness of like wanting to have money and especially like save for retirement to have this sort of financial independence is something that so many of us are aiming for. Um, and yet, you know, it's it's we we don't talk about our strategies, our plans, our, our, our goals, our, our approaches uh, when it comes to these issues. So, you know, I think especially talk about those things. And I would say that this is actually a great way uh, to be able uh, to engage your family on these issues, because a lot of Canadians, you know, we know that the wealth is concentrated with our sort of parents, our grandparents, starting to Open that door for that conversation, you know, understanding that these are family decisions that are being made. Right. And that, uh, uh, you know, and so so as people sort of have those Thanksgiving meals or having that, you know, those family conversations, open it up. And I would say sort of start by testing the waters a little bit. See how open people are. You know, to it. You don't want to push too far. But uh, also what I find is that almost like schedule an appointment with your family to be like, hey, like this is something I really want to talk about right now. I want to have a better understanding of, of where we are as a family, you know, and, and, and what expectations that I should be having or that I shouldn't be having. And it cuts both ways that sometimes it's conversations around expected inheritance. Sometimes it's conversations around like parents, like, are you going to need help in retirement? Like, if you don't have a proper plan, like, that's okay. But I need to budget for that. I need to know that, you know, that you guys might need a little bit of help mm-hmm. in the coming years. And and so, you know, I would say that really open the door to those conversations, have them. Absolutely, I'm trying to get people greedy. So when when I can show that something like CoPower is earning a 5% annual return on bonds, You know, and it's like asking people, well, how much are your bonds earning right now? I guarantee it's not 5% unless it's like Bombardier or something really risky, like a company that might go bankrupt. So, you know, I so really have I think having those conversations again, it's this notion of empowerment um, and that when we do feel comfortable talking about money, when we do learn the language around that to move from start with financial literacy to understand the difference between stocks and bonds, to understand RSPs and TFSAs and how we can save and invest for our future, and then move beyond that to economic confidence, which is going to be in my new buzzword, and really starting to show that, hey, actually, I'm doing this better than you are. Yeah. Right? (laughs) I'm making more money. Let's compare portfolios. And I can sleep at night. While you're getting ripped off by the bank, I'm actually earning higher returns and, you know, can sleep at night and feel like I'm contributing to a better world.
0: We have five seconds. Tim, tell the nice people your website again.
3: Uh, SustainableEconomist.com is the blog and GoodInvesting.com is the financial planning site. All right.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Tim Nash. Check those websites out. Thank you also to Dave and Lauren for joining me and Megan, our tech in the studio, and you, the listener, for listening. We'll see you all next week. Take care.